Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spook Boys have officially joined Patreon. That's right, baby. The show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms, and again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to patreon.com, where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today. Good idea to record this episode in a haunted house. I know, right? Kind of digging the vibe. This was fun. How'd you sleep? Because, I mean, for an evil old house that they say stood for 90 years and might stand for another 90 more, uh, not much happened. Yeah, I'm surprised that we didn't hear any banging in the night or anything, but uh, I don't know. I, I, wait. Are you in bed with me? Are we in the same bed? How did this happen? Nah, man. I'm on the couch. Wait, where are your hands right now? By my side. Those those aren't your hands gently holding my hips right now? Wait, I thought I was holding two pillows. (laughs) Those aren't pillows? Ah! (laughs) Hell yeah. Well, uh, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast where me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my craven co-host, Derek, discuss horror movies of past, present, and future haunted. Maybe not haunted? Don't know. And uh, we discuss their themes and modern social relevancy and phobias and all the other good stuff. And You uh, fucked up our intro so hard. <laughs> yeah, I'm not looking at it. Whatever. How many times have we done this? They know the drill. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> we're going to discuss these movies, talk about how scary they are for hard newbies like Derek and hard junkies like myself, and uh, discuss, uh, are they still relevant to the modern era? So we are discussing the first part of our sprawling haunting of... I don't know, late summer, early fall yeah, uh, season. Yeah, we're, we're not doing like a Dead Boy Summer. We're not doing like seasons yeah. for this. But we are kind of going all out with Hill House, starting off on the main show, at least, with The Haunting from 1963. Is this the first adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House? Yes. Um, and considered by many the best out of the movies, at least. And then... For our patrons, you already probably know that we kind of started this because uh, at the time of this episode dropping, our patrons will have already had a Patreon exclusive episode of us talking specifically about the original 1959 masterpiece novel by Shirley Jackson and also talking about the author herself, Shirley Jackson, more in depth. So, I mean, it's kind of impossible not to bring up the novel. and reference it while we're talking about this movie so we will do it a little bit during this episode but if you want more of an in-depth context into the novel itself and shirley jackson 
and how important that story really is. And you want to gauge it against the actual movie from 1963 of The Haunting. Consider going to donate to our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash watch if you dare. It's only $5 a month. And you get that episode. You get all the background info on The Haunting of Hill House, the novel. And you get all the additional content we already have out there. We have well over, I don't know about well over, but over a dozen hours of bonus content on there at this point. And we're adding more every month. So yeah, that's our little, uh, I guess, spiel out of the way for that. Yeah, I know the joke is always like, oh, for the cost of a cup of coffee, you got to be getting like a fucking small, plain ass black coffee for it to still be under $5. That's all I'll say. I mean, even a cheap beer at a, at a bar is going to be either that. If you're lucky, it'll be that expensive. $5. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, Patreon's there. It's great. We have a lot of cool stuff coming up on that. But yeah, we are going to start today with The Haunting from 1963, directed by Robert Wise. And we will discuss that in a little bit. First, we are going to discuss... Any horror recommendations of things that we have ourselves consumed recently, be it other movies, books, TV shows, comics, video games, etc., just any other horror media that we want to throw out there for you, our listeners. So, Derek, you already mentioned you don't really have anything. You're kind of holding back, so that's fine. Yeah. I'm going to jump in and give you my recommendations yeah. in. Peek behind the curtain, I flew through the novel, uh, The Haunting of Hill House. Uh, in preparation for this episode, but and watching this movie, so most of my like recommendation time spent was actually consuming that novel, which I'll just say even right here is not just a horror masterpiece, but a literary masterpiece. Oh, yeah. So like, if you love books and you love reading, you know, even if it's a little dated or not your style, you should at least give it a read for the historical importance of it. But it is, I, I mean, it's a creepy as fuck story. Regardless, it still holds up. Yeah. I mean, if we want to count this as a sort of recommendation, I read The Yellow Wallpaper, the really famous horror short story from 1982 that American writer Charlotte Perkins Gilman published about a woman having a nervous breakdown and possibly murdering her husband and being obsessed with this room with yellow wallpaper that yeah. uh, her husband locks her in as she just has a total breakdown in reality mentally. There's a lot of thematic overlaps. Oh, yeah, that's just scratching the surface, and it is lauded as one of the greatest works of horror fiction anything, um, and I think it's actually being turned into a film adaptation, which is interesting, but we'll see how long that takes with the, the writer's strike and everything. Yeah. But yeah, like, really, again, I, I just only reread the Yellow Wallpaper because, again, it's a short read, and it is a good companion piece for specifically the book, The Haunting of Hill House. So I may talk more in depth or well, by the time that our our patrons listen to the episode, I may have already talked more in depth with comparing the L wallpaper to the novel. So I would just say if you haven't read that short story, go check it out. I mean, you could probably find it anywhere online at this point and give it a read because it is a fantastic short story and it is one of the best early examples of psychological horror. And again, like between Mary Shelley's Frankenstein between Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House between Charlotte Gilman's The All Wallpaper like modern horror as we know it the very roots of it were all feminist and female writers so um I that kind of goes back to like something we always talk about Aaron where 
poor seems to be kind of ahead of the curve on social issues when things are kind of considered taboo. So yeah, do you have anything to add to that? Only thing I'll add, and I brought it up in the Patreon episode, but I would also definitely recommend just check out Shirley Jackson's other stuff. She does not have a ton of work, but all of her stuff is really good. I would especially recommend The Lottery. The Lottery fucking rocks. So that is a great horror story. So yeah, anyway, I've got two suggestions, both of which are movies caught up with some new stuff. So first thing I want to mention is Cobweb from this year, 2023, directed by Samuel Bodin. It's okay. It's just a bad dream. I heard it again. No more nightmares tonight. Okay, champ? <gasps> Daddy! This is getting ridiculous. This is an old house. There's bound to be bumps in the night. Peter drew this? Yes. Is he all right? Peter has an overactive imagination. You know, I wish I had someone I could talk to about the things that were happening in my house. Mom? Peter, sometimes you have to make hard decisions to protect your family. You have a beautiful imagination. It's going to get you into trouble one day. So, Aaron, before you go on, Mm -hmm. the two recommendations I was hoping you were going to talk about were Cobweb and Talk to Me. So I'm one for two so far. Um, spoiler alert, you're right on the money. Okay, so, cool. <laughs> cobweb. Mm, there are things I really liked about it. There are things that absolutely did not work for me. Okay. I think it is very well directed. I think most of my issues with this story have to do with the script, which was written by Chris Thomas Devlin, whose only other credit is the Netflix Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie from last year that I fucking hated. Oof, yeah. I think as far as the look, the feel of the movie, it is young boy in elementary school, very shy, definitely an outcast kid who is bullied. His parents are very overprotective and strange. His parents are Lizzie Kaplan from Party Down, Cloverfield, and Castle Rock, and Anthony Starr from The Boys. And the young boy is played by Woody Norman. He was in Come On, Come On and The Last Voyage of the Demeter, which is out now, which we are supposed to be going to see in a couple of days. This kid is stuck in this house and very much like The Haunting and The Haunting of Hill House. He starts hearing voices and he starts hearing knocking from the walls and he starts hearing a voice talking to him in the night. You eventually learn that, like, oh, there was a girl on this block that disappeared on Halloween night a couple of years ago. The parents are definitely up to something. Their behavior is, you know, weird, unstable. There is something more going on. 
the young boy is showing some signs of trauma and abuse at his school, where his substitute teacher, played by Cleopatra Coleman from Infinity Pool, she starts noticing this and kind of trying to, like, raise the red flags that something is wrong at home. (sighs) So I don't want to go any further than that, because then we start really going down the rabbit hole of the plot and what's going on. Right. I think where I struggled with this movie is it teeter-totters in a really weird way. And I feel like the decision to balance these tones is more born out of how the script is written and how the story is positioned. Because on one hand, this feels like a very fantastical, not whimsical, whimsical is not the right word, but Mmm, spoopy Halloween. There's crunchy leaves on the ground and a wind blowing and this family that lives in, of course, the fucking nastiest house with paint peeling and it's, you know, full of cobwebs and spiders and peeling wallpaper. Ah, one of your favorite tropes. (laughs) Yeah, they have a pumpkin patch in the backyard that's literally taking over the entire yard. So the Conjuring house. Pretty much, right? The parents are acting like something's up. So on one hand, it's like, okay, you're seeing this clearly through the eyes of this kid. And so everything is heightened. Everything is a little bit fantastical. But then it kind of switches back to like this being kind of an actual serious thriller drama and the tone kind of leveling out and not being so whimsical. Like it will go from literally having Danny Elfman. music with again the wind blowing down the street to just weird handheld camera work and procedural drama kind of thing it's odd but the story is kind of balanced like that it is this strange story of childhood abuse and trauma on one half but then the other half is mommy and daddy are the evil witches that live in the gingerbread house and so i don't know how i feel about it in that sense the ultimate payoff of the movie is fun. It's gnarly. It's gory as fuck. There are lots of cool practical effects going on, a lot of practical gore. There is a very practical creature monster kind of thing, which I'm not really spoiling that because it's literally the fucking poster. That part of it's great. I really dug all of that. And of course, it's the kind of thing where you think you know what's going on and then turns out, oh, guess what? You're exactly right. You know exactly what's going on. But then it Hmm. does kind of have a further twist where, okay, no, this is something completely different now. I think overall there are a lot of things that I enjoyed about the movie. It just did not work for me as a whole total thing. Great idea. Maybe a bit been there, done that with a bunch of other movies before. It's very much just kind of pulling tropes, but all together in a way that kind of feels a little bit like a YA horror story from the 90s that we grew up with. It kind of reminds me a lot of a scary stories to tell in the dark kind of thing. Interesting. But it is definitely more adult, I guess, ultimately, with what it's dealing with. Parents, their children, abuse, etc. From the little bit I saw of it, I mean, and this is just from previews and things, it just kind of looked a little bit like Babadook again. Yes and no. Yeah. There is a 5% chunk of this movie that is 
yo, the Babadook's really good. <laughs> People Under the Stairs is really good. Yeah, right. <laughs> I really love A Tale of Two Sisters. Okay. Anyway, it's interesting. I think the other thing that really threw me off, again, and this is part of that tonal issue, Lizzie Kaplan and Anthony Starr, their performances are so heightened in a way that is it immediately makes you raise your eyebrow because it's just so over the top and unbelievable for what the rest of the movie is. Also, there is zero way that you buy that they're totally normal and everything's okay. Fucking Anthony Starr from The Boys as, hi, I'm your father, and he's fucking glaring at you from across the room, right? (laughs) Nothing about that is, oh yeah, this is totally normal situation, everything's fine. So like, that stuff, I was just kind of like, eh, but I think it's interesting enough to give it a watch, for sure. And there's some great practical effects stuff at the end. Kind of leaves it open for a sequel. I don't know if that's what they're going to go for. I don't know. I feel like this movie already is not quite sure what it's trying to say and do anyway. So I don't know how much a sequel would really improve on that. But anyway, yeah, check it out. It's on VOD and streaming right now. I think it got a limited theatrical because it's a Lionsgate movie. I think Lionsgate was just like, oh, fuck it. There's no way with Barbenheimer and everything else going on this summer that this movie's going to make a (laughs) dent. So just dump it. Yeah, because advertising for it just recently came out of nowhere. That's why I even knew about it. So along the same lines, the other movie I'll talk about, which is currently out right now in theaters and is making a big splash, relatively, is Talk To Me. You're doing it again tonight. Please. It's my mom's remembrance day. I just want to forget about it. Huh? I'll do it. Cannot go for more than 90 seconds. Am I clear? What happens after 90 seconds? Don't want to stay. Light the candle to open the door. Blow it out to close it. Put your hand on it. Now say, talk to me. Talk to me. You've been saying stuff. What if we open the door, but we didn't shut it? Oh my god, they followed us! I like it. They're not gonna stop. They're never gonna stop! It's an Australian horror movie directed by Danny and Michael Filippo, who are mostly known for all of their fucking YouTube shenanigans. Apparently, again, this is one of those things where, like, I'm just too old at this point to know, like, what the Utes are into. But, yeah, these are, like, the Raka Raka guys from YouTube. So they just do all their own short films. Yeah, they created uh, their YouTube in, like, 2013 and it exploded. They're, like, one of the biggest Australian channels on YouTube. And I want to say, too, that 
I remember seeing stuff about Talk to Me last year, but I think it was because it was making a couple uh, circuits on film festivals, and people kept talking about like the preview screenings at there the beginning and of this year. Yeah, yeah, it started going to festivals at the beginning of this year, mm. and A twenty four picked it up from a festival. <laughs> Man, between A twenty four and Blumhouse, we're just getting those good, good horror movies out. Look, that's fine, because the fucking major studios can't seem to get their shit together right now. No, they really can't. So anyway, yeah, this is very much a, like, Gen Y, Gen Z horror movie. And it's interesting, because I have heard a lot of critics and a lot of people be like, "Eh, I don't think this movie worked for me, this movie didn't really click with me. I think there is a very clear generational thing happening with this movie. Kind of like the Skinamarink, because that had a splash, too. Yes. Yeah. You know, this movie is very much about social media is like a big element of it. And a lot of like what teenagers are kind of, you know, universally always have been dealing with is in it as well, too. But I think there is just something very specific about some of the fears that the movie's dealing with, but also how this movie's kind of choosing to execute that stuff where I think this is just a very young people-focused movie that is made by young people, starring young people, about young people. I think that's where some of the disconnect is because the people who are like really fucking digging this are all that age group. For them, this fucking works. Yeah. And I'll say, like, as far as one of the high school horror kinds of movies this really really works well <laughs> we got saw <laughs> the new metal masterpiece saw they get talked yeah. to me <laughs> yeah you know i think the movie is very very well technically executed there is no lack of confidence in how this movie is put together i thought the performances were all really fucking solid The dialogue is well-written. I think that's also kind of something that's a little bit off-putting for some peoples because there's a lot of current slang and a lot of Aussie slang, too, that's thrown in there. But I don't know. Overall, like, Heather and I had a blast with this movie. It wasn't nearly as extreme as a lot of the marketing and the word of mouth kind of led up to. I mean, I heard some shit coming out of festivals that this was one of the most fucking extreme, ridiculous, hardcore things you'll ever fucking see. There was some gnarly shit in the movie, don't get me wrong. Um, There is uh, some good eyeball trauma, That's I'll leave it there. <laughs> and there's some very unsettling imagery in it, for sure. I don't think it was that fucking hardcore. I mean, granted, I'm a fucking junkie constantly chasing that dragon, but... but- Compared to Evil Dead Rise, which also came out this year, would you say... I think Evil Dead Rise is way gorier. Yeah. It's a little more nonstop. It's a little more balls to the wall. It is campier than this movie Talk to Me. Oh, really? I thought Talk to Me was camp... I thought it was going to be campy. No, it, it is not that campy. The teens are jokey. There is some humor in it. It definitely has hard Dutch angle crash zooms and that kind of thing. Like there are some evil dead style elements to it, but it's not campy. The themes that it's dealing with are very serious. It deals with, you know, there's a lot of COVID stuff in here. There's a lot of loss. There's a lot of isolation. There's a lot of substance abuse, parallel narrative kind of bullshit happening. The entire movie is very much 
a metaphor for substance abuse and drug use. The directors and everybody involved has kind of specifically said that's a lot of what we were playing around with. The premise is these teenagers have in their possession this porcelain hand. Think a fucking mannequin hand. They are all getting together at different people's houses and like having parties where they will hold hands with this severed hand and say, talk to me, and basically channel spirits through it into themselves. And so they kind of become possessed. They become a vessel for, you know, 90 seconds is the cutoff that the movie, you know, gives them, and they have to blow out the candle to expel whatever's inside of them. Well, obviously, that shit goes bad. They start taking it further and further and further and abusing the idea further and further, and, you know, things get out of hand. The other catch is all the other kids are filming this. They're all filming each other and putting it up on social media, that kind of shit. So it becomes a viral game between. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. cool. And it's, it's very much a weird party dare challenge yeah. kind of thing. Like a Bloody Mary or something like that. Yeah, and they just clearly have no fucking clue what they're getting into. But it's interesting as, you know, watching some of them fully just buy it from the beginning. Some of them are completely skeptical until they try it themselves. You know, it's all of the kind of usual shit that you get up to in high school. And I think it's very well observed in a way that feels completely contemporary and fresh, but also is still shit that you can relate to no matter how old you are. And that's why I don't get about some of the disconnect with this with some older viewers. You know, they have already announced that there's going to be a sequel to this, which part of what I like is this movie does not fucking explain a whole lot of anything. It tells you the story of these characters, but it does not give you a whole lot of exposition and background and setup of this hand and what it is. There are a few throwaway lines. That is all you need. So I could see a sequel easily kind of moving in the direction of, oh, let's fucking discover the origins of the hand. And I'm not that interested in that, honestly. I would like to just see a new group of people dealing with it in their their own ways. But yeah, this was super fun. It stars Sophie Wilde, Alexander Jensen, Joe Bird, Zoe Tarakis, Chris Elozio. All of them mostly just been on Aussie and UK TV stuff, some movies here and there. But they they're all, all pretty like young too, right? Very young, very fresh yeah. and new. And Miranda Otto from Lord of the Rings, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, The Thin Red Line, War of the Worlds. She is the mother of two of the kids. Wait, she's Aon, right? In yeah. Lord of the Rings? I've heard that name before. <laughs> okay, yeah, interesting. But yeah, I would definitely, definitely recommend give this one a spin. Heather and I had a blast with it. If you want to watch something that's an interesting twist on something you've kind of seen before, I would definitely recommend it. And right. there is, again, great practical effects in it. There's some great makeup in it. There's visually some very interesting wild shit happening. But it's not as fucking hardcore as a lot of the marketing is making it out. You know, if if you've been kind of iffy about it from that standpoint, I do not think it's that fucking intense. If you can handle, like, a hereditary, it's about on the same wavelength as that. There are some gnarly moments, but it is not, oh my god, the most hardcore shit I've ever seen. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, would recommend Talk To Me. It's in theaters right now. I would recommend it see it in the theater. It's a good time but it will be on streaming very soon, I would bet. 
I do like the idea of the hand that you grab and do that with. I mean, it's a simple idea, but it's pretty fun. Oh, yeah. A severed hand. Not really sure where it came from. That's creepy. And Mm -hmm. you apparently can commune with spirits of that. Yeah, that's a fun idea. I like that. Yeah. I love that there is a deluxe 4K release of this that's already been announced by Umbrella, which is a Aussie distributor that comes with a steel book and art cards and a rigid case and all this packaging bullshit. But then it also comes with a fucking porcelain hand and like a Sharpie marker that you can write on it with. That's some good shit. Are you going to get one? Oh, no. I I don't need that level of it. Uh. This is one that I will pick up. For sure. Like, I- I'll grab whatever 4K release we get here, but uh, I don't need the fucking porcelain hand. I don't know. Will that porcelain hand turn into, like, the Babadook storybook that's now, like, hundreds of dollars to even get a second printing of? I mean, no, because this is going to be a mass-produced thing. Yeah, okay. It'll be limited, but it's not going to be like, oh, there are 11 that we made. You know, it's not going to be yeah. crazy. Speaking of, I know I mentioned this to you, but I'll, I'll bring this up on air. We stopped at a second and Charles that is in our area. The, uh, fucking love those stores. For people that don't know, this is a used bookstore primarily, but they also have music and video games and toys and all kinds of random shit. More than half of my retro collection of video games comes from second and Charles. Yeah. Every one of these has a big glass locked secured case kind of at the front of the store. Mm-hmm. Where they've got rare books, rare items, expensive shit. Rare video right? games, r- just expensive stuff. Yeah, yep. The one near us, at least last time I was in there, has a copy of the fucking Babadook pop up book that was made, and it is oh, like six hundred fucking dollars. Yeah. So yeah, would love to have. Can't spend absolutely not. Can't fucking six hundred dollars on that. You know, I can make my own for way less than that. I want one so fucking bad though. Yeah. So, okay, cool. Well, yeah, that's all I got. So let's jump into the conversation about The Haunting. Again, we are going to be kind of eschewing the, like, origins of the story, Shirley Jackson. We're skipping all of that for this conversation. So we're just going to focus on the movie and how this first adaptation came to be. And we are going to have all that discussion off to the side on Patreon for you. So please check it out there. And we'll probably reference the book a little bit in our discussion, because again, it's kind of impossible not to, especially for me, because one of it kind of dictated my entire response to this movie. Also reading the book, and I'll get more into detail on that when we start yeah. our discussion in earnest. And then also on top of that, especially if you're on Patreon, we're just kind of starting our journey through Hill House. I mean, we're not trying to surprise anybody. We're going to have another main show episode, the episode following this one on another movie adaptation. And then our Patreon, we're going to start going through the Mike Flanagan joint. Oh, yeah. Which I am, uh, oh boy, I'm just kind of like sinister. I'm just like, we're we're really just kind of really stayed in the deep end, huh? Like, (laughs) I'm fucking nervous about starting it. Yeah, we started off light with Gravity Falls. We're going straight into one of the better, like, modern and scarier modern horror TV shows in the last 10 years easily. Hell yeah. But yeah, so we'll be in Hill House for a while. Again, we don't really have an official like season of Spoop or Dead Boy Summer for this. We're just kind of going to be in Hill House and, you know, that's where we're going to be for a bit. And uh, yeah, consider joining us for the full journey by also uh, checking out uh, Patreon episodes. But otherwise, if you don't, 
you'll at least have this episode and another episode on yeah. Hill House adaptations. And it was great timing for this, too, because uh, this is the 60th anniversary of this movie, the Robert Wise adaptation. Again, based on the Shirley Jackson novel, The Haunting of Hill House. This is considered to be one of the best horror movies ever, period. Guillermo del Toro, Stephen King, Steven Spielberg have all sung this movie's praises. Oh, not just them. Papa Scorsese. Papa Scorsese. This is his number one favorite <laughs> horror movie yeah. of all time. So, I'm Martin Scorsese, and this is... There you go, cinema. Mm. <laughs> so here is a preview of what we're getting into. Tonight the dead will walk, and you, unbeliever, will scream unheard. Stop it! The haunting. The haunting. What do we really know of that other world of hauntings, of apparitions in the night, of the sinister powers of darkness? The Haunting was produced and directed by Robert Wise, the brilliant producer of West Side Story, and stars Julie Harris, Claire Bloom, Richard Johnson, Russ Tamblin. You cannot deny terror. You cannot look the other way. You have to face the supernatural, face the chilling mysteries of forces you cannot understand or control when The Haunting holds you in its spell. The Haunting. Hail so, yeah. I'm going to say this right up top. I understand why this movie is so good. I get it. I do. I enjoyed the movie when I watched it. Let me start there. And there are moments that are genuinely creepy, even under a modern lens, despite this being black and white despite this being in 1963 and the acting style is kind of of the time. I, I think everything that you're saying right there equals it all adds up to this movie's old. Not just that, because like we've covered, uh, I mean, I would say Psycho, Peeping Tom and Eyes Without a Face. And even I know I brought up Persona as like a recommendation on an older episode. Those movies I enjoyed a lot more than this one. And I enjoyed this movie again. I don't want to poo poo it, but. I think the reason why I was a little underwhelmed in my watch of it was because I had literally just read the book. Like sure. I finished the book on like a Tuesday and then I watched, sat down and watched this movie on a Wednesday. So I think my analysis and judgment of this movie isn't necessarily totally fair because of that. And the book is like such a literary masterpiece and so well written. And there's so many things that just don't translate to a screen that a book can handle and do. It was just almost impossible for me not to judge it. You, you always hear the cliche of, oh, the book is always better than the movie. And I try not to use that cliche often because it is just so tired. In this instance, I kind of a thousand percent agree with that, that the book is way better than sure. the movie. Do I recommend this movie? Absolutely. Do I recommend this movie for horror fans? I mean, if you're a horror fan, and you haven't watched this. What are you doing? Absolutely. Yeah. For historical purposes and the importance of this film and greater horror cinema, you should watch it. My own personal take is going to be very skewed because of me enjoying the book so much. I'll say why as we go through our discussion, because I also don't think this movie has aged quite as well as other horror masterpieces from the time. Again, Psycho, Peeping Tom, etc. I think those movies have aged better than this movie has. But also, too, like there's still moments in this movie that are amazing, like some of the best cinema I've ever seen. That's where I'm going to be coming from. Is it scary? Uh, it's creepy, but like I think if you want a good historical horror movie to start with, horror newbies could all, 
absolutely watch this movie and enjoy it. This is one that I saw as a kid. This is a movie I've seen basically my entire life. This yeah. is a great starter horror movie. You know, I don't know that it would necessarily hold the attention of younger kids nowadays. It is a no. little bit long as well. It's hour 50. But this is a good younger teenagers who want to get into horror movies and they're maybe a little bit tepid about jumping into the deep end. Or if you just want to introduce your kids to some older horror movies, this is a great option. Yeah. But to the point of, is this movie scary? I would say like, no. At, at this point, no. But it's definitely creepy and it's enjoyable for sure. I think the scarier version of this movie that also would pair really well with this movie is The Changeling, which we covered a while back with Shelby Scott on a past. There's a lot of similar stuff going on. A lot of similarities between this and The Changeling. But I get the importance. It absolutely has earned every bit of its legacy that it has. Again, I just like, I think it's just my timing with the book and and watching it. (laughs) So let's kind of start there. I think overall, in terms of just the larger plot, and the characters. This is a pretty straightforward adaptation. Yeah, for the most part. I think where this movie maybe stumbles, if at all, and this is just a difference in like how the text was interpreted and adapted. Wise and Getting, the writer, very much approach this purposely from the standpoint of we don't want you to know whether there is actually supernatural shit going on for sure, 100%, without a doubt, or is the central character just fucking losing her shit? And I think when the movie starts to veer in that direction, it loses a little bit of what makes the original story so fucking effective and punchy. And an interesting thing is they met with Shirley Jackson and just kind of said like, yo, this is our pitch, this is our idea. You know, we want to just make it to where it's all in Eleanor's head the entire time. And Jackson was just kind of like, uh, cool, nice idea, but no, this is straight up a supernatural horror story. It is supernatural. This shit is actually happening. There are ghosts. Yeah. You know, they were like, okay, sure. And kind of met in the middle a little bit. So like, there is still the ambiguity there of What are we actually looking at? You know, the audience, we have to decide whether or not we buy into what's going on. You know, it's the classic, oh, well, everything can be explained. Look, it's just wind blowing a door open. It's temperature changes because of whatever. You know, you're hearing voices because it's the people on the other side of the house. And this house is echoey because the architecture is weird. There's that side of it. And there is also the like, you're just fucking imagining things. This is literally you just hearing shit in your own head and running around and going crazy. None of us are experiencing anything else. It has those elements. But then there's still stuff like, what was fucking pushing that door? Mm -hmm. Right? What was some of the banging going on? There's still some definite stuff happening. And there are certainly way too many fucking casually perfect coincidences that are recurring and reoccurring incidents that are very similar right that's kind of the entire idea of how a place becomes haunted or cursed in air quotes is just is there just a lot of bad shit that happened to happen in this exact same spot and it's all just pure coincidence or like is something actually happening the movie does a good job of exploring some of that but in terms of again this movie being 
as effective as it could be, does it need to really fully commit to going full supernatural and showing us the audience that and saying, yes, this is happening? Or did it maybe need to pull a little bit further into the idea that the lead character is just going nuts? So here's my thought on it, because I agree with you. I think if there is a flaw, that is the big one where it doesn't quite fully commit. But I think the movie wants to have its cake and eat it too, in a way, because the movie starts, again, just like the book does with the narration of this is an evil house. It should be burned down. The the ground should be salted. So already off the bat, you're already saying, no, this place is haunted. Before these characters even get here, it's it's an evil house. Then when they actually get there and they are going through all this, there is a bit of the movie kind of exploring. Well, is Nell just going crazy? Yeah. You know, she's full of anxiety and depression. and Is she just having a breakdown? The prologue of this movie fucking kicks ass, too. I love yeah. the opening of this movie. The camera work is gorgeous. The editing in it is stellar. I, I love the entire opening of this where it's just kind of showing you the history of this house and all the bad shit that's yeah. happened there. And I like that they do that exposition dump right at the beginning yeah. instead of pausing to have the professor just tell the characters like what happened here. He can tell them, but they could just cut the scene and go on from there. So you already presented the information as to what makes this house evil. But again, with all that in the very beginning narration, that already tells the audience, no, this is a supernatural place. So then when the movie tries to not present it that way, it is kind of a little whiplash so here's what i think i think the movie could have cleaned up a little bit more if they actually leaned all the way into the supernatural like shirley jackson was saying instead of even trying to explore like is it just in her head i don't know if it would have worked as well if they leaned totally into no she is just imagining all of this because that would definitely defeat the purpose of the source material but also just at this time in hollywood i don't know if it could have done a good job with i don't know if it would have aged as well as it did well this is also gonna be an interesting conversation to have for our next episode (laughs) yeah because spoiler (laughs) alert i don't know if you have watched that version of the story yet no but i know what happens that version (laughs) does 1000 percent fully commit to oh the supernatural shit is actually happening And it goes way off the rails. Yeah, the way they do it is ridiculous. So that's that's (laughs) what I'm saying, right? So the execution is questionable, right? The execution of all of it is very dubious in that version. But does the story work better because they fully commit to it there, whereas here it still kind of teeter-totters a little bit? Anyway, we'll have a little bit more of that conversation next week because it literally flips this entire idea on its head. Right. But for the sake of the audiences, I think the movie does want you to think it's haunted. But then, like you were saying, the director and writer wanted to kind of play with that idea a little bit, Um, which is fine. The character of Nell is extremely complicated, and there are elements of mental illness, obviously, given her history and her characterization. When we were talking about this movie kind of being of the time from an acting standpoint and dialogue presentation that was one of the things that was kind of a little bit of tonal whiplash for me from the book to the movie because the movie speeds everything up which naturally it has to yeah even in two hours that's not a lot of time to cover everything that happens in the book so they kind of have to crank everybody up to 11 and remove any of the subtlety of the characters and how hill house turns them against Nell and vice versa they're at the house for a long period of time 
in the book. It's like a week or two, right? Yeah. And there is a much more gradual ramp up into the insanity. Yeah. I guess at least for the movie, you could kind of say it's a little similar, but not the same as the argument I hear all the time with The Shining of why Jack Nicholson is so miscast, because right off the bat, you'd never buy that Jack Nicholson was a level-headed, sane, (laughs) loving father, right? When he's like fucking doing his fucking eyebrows and is just like, hey. And to that point, when Nell arrives... She starts off in the house like a frightened mouse. She's already kind of manic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's already a little unhinged. She's already like a worrywart. Theo immediately just jumps into like antagonizing and teasing her, which was a little interesting. But funny enough, by the end, though, then you start seeing Theo's sympathy for her, which was interesting. So I think the movie was trying to say Theo was trying to kind of bully her out of the house because she didn't want anything bad to happen to her. And then to the movie's credit she does show that general care and protection later on sure jack is far less subtle in this than he is in the book because he's basically the guy who comes out look at me i'm a shyster i want to like literally take all the silverware of this house and sell it i wonder how much i can get for this stairway i wonder how much i can get for this and that i want to turn it into a nightclub despite that though the doctor actually i didn't mind the doctor's casting i do think he was still a little too young casted in the movie And I did not buy him in Nell's romantic tension that they had in this movie. That was also another kind of low point for me. No, and I think that's kind of some of the point is you're supposed to feel like it's very one-sided because, in fact, it is. It's very much Nell kind of imprinting, you know, a lot of her affections onto him and it not being reciprocated exactly like... he there's is one or two scenes. friendly and affectionate, but not in like a romantic way. And she's taking it as romantic. I will say he kind of pushes the limit on that with the balcony scene when she almost falls off the balcony and he like catches her. But yeah, besides, I yeah, I agree with you. And I think out of everybody, the character that still, though, is the most fascinating is Theo. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Claire Bloom's performance in this movie is outstanding and we'll talk about that when we go through the cast but her remaining the most fascinating character for me and the movie actually does at least for like 1963 does a decent job of proto example of queer horror main character yeah that is also heavily hinted at not even heavily really just kind of almost spelled out in the book i read a few analysis of the movie and the book sorry i don't have it off the top of my head so i can't give credit but some point out that the way that she is dressed in the movie was very fashion forward as far as the queer community went. The stylist who dressed her was a British mod scene yeah. stylist. But then like also too, you have the scene where like she's being flirtatious, not even flirtatious, just, you know, like playful and sarcastic is kind of her nature and social. But like there's that moment where Jack is trying to kind of mack on her and he even tries to touch her shoulders and she's like, don't fucking touch me. Get off me. This is where, to your book and the movie are a little bit mixed up, because in the movie, he is Luke, not Jack, by the way. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, some of the characters Luke. are renamed for weird reasons, right? But yeah, like that scene, too, also being like hinting at her not being attracted to men and also yeah. already being in a relationship with another woman. I think that's all super fascinating, and it's kind of amazing that it was such a big aspect in a book that was came out in 1959 
and then yeah. it kind of translated to the screen in 1963 in some ways. It's explicit in the book, and I would say it's still pretty explicit mm. here in the movie, despite just the time being what it was and the studio's mandate that we're not going to be explicit about this, right? But the movie still, through the dialogue and the character interactions, makes it pretty clear what's going on. And that's an interesting dynamic between those two female characters in this, the two female leads, which I'll get to that in just a second. But, you know, I think for me, that is all the stuff that makes this movie work so fucking well. Because for me, it is not really about the fucking house. And it's not about whether or not the house is haunted. And it's not about how spoopy the house is. All that stuff works. It's all effective. The character dynamics and the interpersonal relationships that develop as Eleanor is trying to, like, discover and kind of find her own personhood and her own identity and find something to grasp onto and how being in the house and being in a place that is overwhelmingly claustrophobic with history and people that kind of came before. There's a little bit of weird imposter syndrome with her going on. She is an adult who has spent most of her life taking care of her sick mother, so she has not really had opportunities to figure out who she is and develop her own identity and her own wants and desires and experience life. Still acts still, very childlike, acts right? Childlike. You know, all of that and how she interacts and kind of clings on to these people and how they reject her at times, she rejects them at times, but how a lot of that interpersonal framework kind of crumbles by the end, which is where she comes unraveled. All of that could be happening outside of the confines of the house, right? Yeah, it's kind of like that play that is referenced at the end of American Psycho, where it's a play that takes place in hell, and that's like yeah, the big yeah. twist, and like the whole concept is, Hell is just other people. It's not a place. But yeah, like I think that's an interesting part of just the whole concept of the haunting. That's what's really going on is these interpersonal relationships as opposed to this evil house. The evil house is just causing tensions to elevate even further and feeding off that, I guess, even negative energy, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Well, regardless, too, of whether or not the house is haunted, you still have a group of people who don't really know each other who are all shoved into these confined locations for days at a time. They're all kind of rubbing up against each other in weird ways in this claustrophobic environment. And, you know, the house in and of itself is a catalyst for this because it's just not a comfortable, hospitable environment. You know, it's the same kind of dynamic that happens anytime that you put any group of people in an isolated location. You know, it's the kind of thing that, like, again, bound to happen sooner or later. There was going to be some drama and problems going on. So, like, does it even matter if the house is haunted? Probably not, right? Well, to the, the house itself's credit, and this is really a credit to the movie as well, The you don't entirely see or know nature of weird angles and the structure of the house not making any sense and it being like a oh, yeah. maze. The quote-unquote supernatural parts that happen that, are kind of on purpose vague, and again, you don't really entirely see or know what they are. All of that was actually really well done in this movie. Yeah. Especially the outside of Hill House, 
that set design and whatever they used was really cool. I thought that was that's kind of how I pictured it in my head when I was reading the book, especially having like that tower that kind of makes no sense. Yeah. Sort of off to the side and in the back. The movie does a good job of the house itself and how just unknowable it is when you're on the inside and even on the outside of it. Yeah, there's some cool shit there that I'll get to when we start talking about yeah. the actual production of the movie. The house itself is really interesting. Yeah. The sets are incredible, but Jesus fucking Christ, it's so gaudy and cluttered. It's just so fucking Baroque. Every mm-hmm. room is just a fancy antique store full of junk. Yep. <laughs> it is just such a strange place to be. And each room almost feels like a different theme. One is just full of silver, and the other is full of gothic gargoyles. (laughs) Nothing makes sense. Yeah, I mean, there's the entire greenhouse atrium kind of room, the statues and the spiral staircase. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, again, whether or not there's actual supernatural shit happening or not doesn't matter. There is so much history in the house. You look in every room and you're like, where did all this shit come from? Somebody put yeah. this here. Somebody used this stuff. Was this room full of people at one point in time? Why are there so many chairs? Why are there so many tables? Why are there so many couches? Right? This was just built by a dude and his wife and their daughter was here at one point in time. That's it. This wasn't a weird house that always had 40 people in it at the same time. There's a weird sense of there's a history here. There's a lot of shit going on. And that in and of itself is also very pervasive and haunting in that weird unsettling like again we've talked about on previous episodes i'm in this big public building space that's empty it's very liminal back rooms what is this fucking room full of furniture right yeah i mean and a real world example that i think the doctor even mentions in the movie is the manchester house I think would be kind of the closest thing. The Winchester house or the Winchester house, not the Manchester, the Winchester house is the closest thing you could approximate to this in reality. And even just the statue that they joke is of the owner of the house and all the nymph creatures are his daughters and stuff. All that just like is weird and makes no sense, but is kind of creepy and fascinating at the same time. And how it also kind of sort of resembles and mirrors the group that happens to be here right now. Yeah, exactly. That's weird and upsetting, right? Yeah. I mean, just even the imagery of the staircase in the library is, it almost makes no sense, but it's also just enticing and spooky at the same time. Yeah. Well, it's it's also just one of those things where like, no, this shouldn't be here. Why is this in the middle of a room? Why is it so fucking tall? This is some weird Tim Burton set design shit. Who made this decision for this to be here? This is inherently weird and dangerous and scary, and I don't like it. You know, like, that's the kind of stuff that's in the house that is also very, like, oh, no. That is where I'll give this movie more credit than the book, because the book really mostly just talks about the house being complicated and hard to navigate and maze like but the but movie it's different seeing it it's different bringing yeah it to the life. movie makes you see it yeah the choice to make each room a different thing and it's full of just shit and some rooms are just super gaudy other rooms are like marble that is yeah. really cool and and kind of talking about this movie specifically having such an impact on modern horror as we know it 
even from a video game standpoint, like think of the mansion in Resident Evil. Oh yeah, the mansion sure. has like oh here's the garden section where you fight like a plant monster. Here's this section of the house where they keep the pets, and these are all now mutated zombie dogs. And here's the giant kitchen section full of zombies. It's very almost what you would equate to a video game if you're like in a haunted place and each part of a mansion has different things going on in it. Another thing this movie addresses that is real world upsetting, scary, is the idea of sleepwalking and night terrors. That's already some bad shit. Yeah, we we already explored that a little bit with Sinister. Yeah, the scene that we kind of clowned on for our stupid opening where Eleanor in the middle of the night, somehow goes from being in the bed to the couch, waking up with the sensation that somebody has been fucking squeezing the shit out of her hand. It's terrifying as shit. And in a house like this, where there's just so much weird shit and so many weird rooms and everything, the idea of, oh god, I sleepwalk is terrifying. Going back to, like, the core character stuff. You know, Eleanor clearly is not well even before she gets to the house, she is yeah. stressed. She is anxious. She is fucking over it and fed up now that her mother has passed. Like, okay, this is done. I have a sense of liberation that I can fucking move on and finally start living my life. And her sister and brother in law are like, the fuck? No. Yeah. What? Huh? Yeah. You can't fucking be out on it. Worst fucking couple ever. And yeah, like you said, she steals, question mark? Yeah. Takes the car that belonged to her mother, which technically, I guess, would now belong half to her and half her sister because of the will or whatever, but she just takes the car. Again, Eleanor's clearly not well from the beginning, so we're already entering into this idea of these people who have psychic, parapsychological, paranormal things about them right like theo is supposedly a psychic she supposedly has qualities of a medium Uh, in the movie they do kind of crank it up to gene gray level a little bit yeah (laughs) ability by the way so she seems to be able to read people very well yeah but eleanor obviously you know they say like oh the reason that you were brought here is because there were like poltergeist-like activities that were kind of centered around you when you were a child, like the rocks falling on the house and that kind of thing. And regardless of that, it's the kind of thing where it feels like the entire experiment is already tainted from the beginning because Eleanor is already bringing all this fucking emotional baggage with her. Again, you know, I don't like using the word hysterical. Right. But that is very much kind of what the story is playing into is, oh, is this just a crazy woman or is something kind of clinging to her, something drawing her to this house? Why did she get picked and not the other half a dozen people that were on the list? Right. Why her specifically? What was drawing her to this house? Well, that's why, like, the Theo relationship between them two in this movie is. So interesting to me because, yeah, again, you have Theo teasing her and being antagonist to her. And it's to the point where you think it's almost just she agrees with that. She's just like, oh, you're overreacting. You're drawing attention to yourself. Get over yourself or leave. But then by the end of the movie, you kind of realize that Theo knew that there was going to be a negative attachment between her and the house. 
and was almost trying to drive her out of it, right? Did you get that sense, at least in the movie, that, that she was trying like, to get her to leave early or before like anything bad would happen? Yes, and even Dr. Markway even specifically says, you need to leave. This is not good for you. This is having a negative effect on you. You need to get out of here before something bad happens. Like They are all trying to convince her to get out, but she is just drawn to the house. She's convinced that the house wants her and that she belongs there. And it's the kind of thing where, again, her struggle to self-actualize is kind of relatable to a lot of people who didn't have the opportunities to figure out who they were in their teens and 20s, right? And that's kind of what I think is interesting with Eleanor and Theo is you get the sense Theo kind of picks up on a lot of this. And Eleanor obviously told her her story and she kind of knows like, yo, I am a confident and fully accepting of my identity and my passions. And, you know, I am an artist. I'm a queer woman. This is who I am. I know who I am, but I can see a little bit of what I used to be in Eleanor. Not sure of who yeah. I am, questioning my identity, not sure like what my passions are and what I want to do. And she's clearly trying to like tease some of that out of Eleanor a little bit and trying to get her to like come out of her shell a little bit. And Eleanor right. to a degree is just fucking latching on to Theo because she can tell this is somebody this is who I want to be yeah this is somebody that I can like discover my identity through you know she is again independent a very strong specific identity but she is also stable despite her being a single woman and an artist and queer in the fucking 60s you don't really get a sense that Theo has any real major problems right There is a sense of stability there that is appealing to Eleanor. It's also interesting, too, how much this movie, just as a motif, is using mirrors and other reflective surfaces to constantly bring Eleanor face-to-face with herself. Yeah, how many times does Nell, like, look at herself in a mirror and Uh has that moment of shock and terror? (laughs) Yeah, there is something weird about how she is in a constant state of disassociation that she'll walk around a corner and see her own reflection and just that flips her the fuck out because she is just so detached from herself at this point. She's struggling to kind of see herself apart from the larger identity of the house and all of its history. And that's part of the reason why she feels like she's kind of meant to be there, meant to be part of this story. Well, it goes from her, like, thinking instantly, like, they're a family, like, her and the three others, when really, like, they're being friendly, but, like, you can tell Theo especially is, like, I'm going back to my life after this. This is just kind of a fun adventure for me, Yeah, and then I'm going back to, like, my partner and moving on, but in Eleanor's, this is now who I have, and when I think she realizes that, like, that's not going to be the case. That's when she lets the house in. Yeah. I have the mindset of this this house is haunted, but I do think it feeds off the energy of certain people. And I think it kind of just takes advantage of Eleanor because of her state and what she thinks. And yeah, that's why like by the end she's like, No, this is where I need to be. Yeah. She's begging Jack, Luke, whatever he is in the movie, 
<laughs> I need to get that straight in my head. Luke. Luke, yeah. She's like begging him, like, take me on. I'll work like Mrs. Dudley. I'll be part of the staff. Just let me stay in this house. Yeah. Now that's her family. Like, now that's her place that she belongs. Yeah. And again, back to like the idea that the movie is pretty straightforward about who Theo is. That's been some criticism I've heard is, well, the movie's, you know, not really committing to the fact that she's a queer woman. I think it is. I think it's just being kind of subtle about it. Well, and it's again, it's 1963. Yeah. It sucks, but like it had to kind of be subtle, I feel like, or this movie would have come under a lot more fire. I feel too, like to the movie's credit, Theo as a character is not presented as deviant. She is not no, not at all as predatory or lecherous. She is not a villain. She is not, you know, this moral example. The movie like fridges her to like prove a point. It doesn't do any of that, right? But I also don't think it's completely hand waving away who she is. I mean, there's that whole conversation between her and Eleanor, and Eleanor asked her, like, what scares you, Theodora? And she just says, knowing what I really want. And just that struggle of, I know who I am, and I can't fully express that and be who I want to be and show that in public always. Like, there is still repression that's there, but you get the sense that she is still confident in who she is as a person from there that's what makes her such a great character i mean and everything i was reading on this movie all the modern takes even are she is the best character for a reason not just because of claire boom's awesome performance but just the character itself and you're right and i think part of why it is such a good character is because it avoids those trope pitfalls that could happen to a character like that especially a movie this old Yeah, and frankly, the person who comes off as shitty and bad is Eleanor, and you can say, well, is it really what she believes? Is the house digging into her and bringing out her true feelings about these people? Whatever, like, that happens, or, like, the moments in the movie where she's just like, this is where I belong. I always think back of, like, What's-His-Face and um, Event Horizon. What are you talking about? I am home. And then he yeah. like goes into the darkness of the ship. <laughs> Melts into the shadows, yeah. There is a scene where Eleanor, in anger, she's arguing with Theo, and she refers to Theo as one of nature's mistakes, right? And is this kind of one of those things where like, all right, is this how Eleanor like really feels about Theo? Is this some kind of under-the-rock shit that like the house is digging into her psychology and pulling out of her as a means to like further kind of push her away and isolate her or is it purely just manipulation of the house and that's not really how she feels because you get the sense that you know they could be friends eleanor she doesn't know what she wants right on one hand she wants theo but it's kind of the typical like does she want to be with theo Or does she want to be Theo? Kind of the same thing with Dr. Markway. Does she really want to be with Dr. Markway in that sense? She just doesn't know what she wants. And between burning her bridges with all these people, right? Because from the get-go, none of them like Luke. Luke is a shit. (laughs) Luke gets on everybody's (laughs) nerves. You know, he is purely there because the current owner, his great aunt, is like, yo... 
He's going to inherit the house one of these days. He should be there to make sure nothing weird happens. None of them like him. He's just kind of like an annoyance. Again, part of the whole like old, and I know this movie is is now in the early 60s and they were starting to move away from this, but there was still some of that golden Hollywood black and white shit of having to explain the themes out loud in dialogue or explaining, I am this character. This is what I do instead of what would be in the book otherwise described or subtly shown. Yeah. So like throughout the entire movie, he is basically just like, my character represents a thief. This is how I act. I am a shyster. I love money. I can't wait to sell all the stuff from this house. And every scene he's in, he's constantly reminding you of that. Yeah. So none of them like Luke. She burns her bridges with Theo because that push-pull tension between the two of them finally boils over. And regardless, again, of whether or not Eleanor really feels negatively about Theo's queerness, or whether the house is drawing this emotional bubbling to the surface and manipulating her and just using that as a reason to push them further away, regardless, her and Theo are separated from each other, right? And as soon as Dr. Markway's wife, Grace, shows up, that is kind of the other like, oh, you're married? Well, mm-hmm. fuck. And so now Eleanor is, once again, on her own, with nobody to cling to, no group, no hope of, you know, leeching off of their personalities and identities to figure out who she wants. She's just fully this blank slate and open again. And the only thing that's there to fill that void is the house. Yeah. I do love that interaction Theo has with Nell leading up to that, egging her on and being like, don't do this. Don't pursue this with the doctor. Yeah. And then when the wife shows up, Theo kind of under her breast says, I warned you. That's such a good moment. I loved that scene. Yeah. I, I mentioned earlier, this is a great gateway movie because there's nothing explicitly too adult, too violent, too sexual, too traumatizing. Like, there's nothing in this movie that's too extreme that you can't show this to younger kids. Where this movie's not going to work, like I mentioned, is is the pacing and the length. The movie is almost two hours, and it is paced like an old movie, which, this is my old man yelling at clouds coming out, but it is the kind of thing where, like, Already, it does really make me sad just how people can barely fucking sit and just watch a normal length episode of a TV show, let alone a movie, let alone a long movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's kind of the other weird thing of, oh, you can sit and watch nine hours and binge a TV show because it's in these weird little bites that you can kind of pull off piece by piece. But you can't sit and just watch a two and a half hour movie without feeling antsy. I don't know. Everybody's tolerance is different. I get it. I was watching fucking Tarkovsky movies and shit when I was in high school. I was that weirdo. But the length and the pacing of this movie is definitely gonna drag for some people. And I think if I have any other criticisms of the movie, it's that, again, this is paced like an old movie. And so there is some like weird connective tissue scenes that just really are not necessary. I would agree with you. As well edited as this movie is in terms of montage and thematics and just the way sequences are put together, I feel like there needed to be a little bit more tightening 
of the overall story and just trim out stuff that's not necessary. For instance, do we really need to have the scene where Eleanor goes down to the garage to get the car and has to talk to like the fat old guy who's yeah, we did not the need car that. Like, we don't need that scene. We don't need that scene yeah. at all. It's Tommy Wiseau in the room driving his fucking car up the block. Yeah. Parking his car, getting out of his car, locking the doors, walking around the car and back up the block again and into the flower shop. We don't need any of that. We don't need any of that bullshit, right? Or even in Psycho when like she steals the money, but then she goes down to the parking garage with the money, opens her car, throws the money in the car, gets in, drives on the parking garage, has a conversation sure. with the parking. That's the kind of stuff where like you don't need that. Trim it, trim it. If there's anything that can be said about that. I try to kind of think about our show in the same way. I'm like, do we really need you and me just fucking gathering our thoughts and like spinning wheels? No, tighten that shit up and get that dead air out. And overall, this episode is going to be 30 minutes shorter, right? Yeah. That's the kind of connective tissue that is not necessary. And for modern audiences, that's going to be a hindrance for a lot of people that this movie is paced the way it is and that it is a little bit long. Again, if I have any other criticisms, that is a very specific to this day and age yeah. modern audience kind of criticism. But I think that's also very subjective to the individual watching. I don't have a problem in the same way that a lot of other people are going to have a problem with that pacing. It's just something you're going to find with old movies, unfortunately. Yes. That's yes. all it is. I would agree with you on that, and I'll take it a step further. Because I want to talk about the final 20 to 30 minutes, and I'll get back to this point we're going with this being one of the only other flaws of this movie because otherwise despite my misgivings especially comparing this movie to the novel i think the final 20 to 30 minutes of this movie are amazing so fucking good it's the scene where nell gives into the house starts dancing around the house is super flighty running away from them hearing them in the background and spying on them she goes into the library climbs the stairs and then ultimately it ends with the ill-fated car crash all of that was filmed great. All of that, I would say, is great cinema, horror cinema. I think some of those scenes, especially when she's climbing the stairs, are genuinely creepy. I actually was a little bit on the edge of my seat watching her climb the library stairs. I thought that was well shot, well paced. It took its time, but it also didn't waste any time either. Loved that entire sequence. The only thing that I thought was a little underwhelming, and I think, again, this is just the day and age. This was what Hollywood movies were like in 1963. After she crashes, they all run to the car crash and they inspect her body. And then it just was underwhelming in that way of just all the characters weren't really that disturbed about it. They were just like very just, well, shrug. Guess she's dead now. Poor her. Let's get the hell out of here. This house sucks. Yeah. And like that was well, about it. This is exactly what we thought was going to happen. That we <laughs> said it was going to happen this entire time. And yet here we are and it's happened. Well, grab the bags and let's head out. Yeah. Yeah. And like Theo, despite how much I love her character in this movie, like all the stuff leading up to like Nell about to leave and Theo is just like, oh, Nell, I wanted to say goodbye to you and I'm please be careful, blah, blah, blah. And then even Theo is kind of just like, well, that sucks. Too bad for her, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Like I was like, OK, but then the ending narration with Nell's voice and her being now part of the house like made up for it. But yeah, again, despite that, and that is just part of the flaw of this is an old movie and these are just some of the things that don't age as well i do think i will go to bat for those final 20 30 minute sequence that is some of the best anything i've watched in a while yeah well i'll also say again going into our next episode 
the opening montage of this movie, I will say, again, fucking rocks. And it's just such a good way to kick this story off that is propulsive and immediately gets you engaged in what's going on and the history of the house. And it basically just gives you the exposition dump right then and there about what you're getting into. The other movie that we're going to cover next doesn't do that. It just kind of starts where the book starts a little bit. And for the book, it's fine. That works. For a movie, it's a weird way to start the movie. And it has no initial engine rev inertia right out the gate go to it. That's really kind of weird the way it starts. And we'll talk about it a little bit further then. But, you know, again, if we're talking the strengths of this movie, that is certainly one is it starts with a bang and it ends with a bang. You know, everything in between is kind of an interesting balance of tension back and forth as things kind of start to happen and the characters start to kind of unravel in different ways. Bro, and the, the way that that payoff happens in those final minutes, even just that small detail before her car literally hits the tree, you see the doctor's wife kind of just flash in the background of the screen running yeah. behind the tree. And you're like, what the fuck was that? And then that revelation comes. And I thought that was amazing. Yeah. I will say, like, the thing that was kind of a little heartbreaking for the Nell character, at that point, you think, like, oh, well, she totally just wants to belong with the house now. She's totally possessed. But then right before she's about to hit the tree, like, one of her final, like, internal monologues is, why aren't they stopping me? Why is no one stopping me from doing this? And then she hits the tree. It's just like, oh, Uh fuck, did she actually really want to do that? And, I mean, again, going back to some real-life horror shit, specifically, like, when it comes to mental illness and people who attempt suicide, universally one of the main things people who attempt suicide and fail seem to say is that in the moment when they actually like jump one of the first things that enters their head is why did i do this i immediately regret this decision so that that was kind of just like a little bit of a gut punch too at the very end that i thought was aaron you and i like we we've joked about too many horror movies especially when it comes to like supernatural is just dealing with trauma but for this movie, I think it works. And uh, this movie is, seems to be a, a big originator of that. In the book, same same thing. And yeah. I didn't mind it because I kind of knew what the whole point of this movie was. And as much as the actress and performance and the way Nell is presented in this movie, I still like the character a lot and I still feel yeah. for the character. But I do think it works. Like I do think mirroring trauma to an actual haunting and to an evil house is fascinating in this context. Yeah. So let's kind of switch over and continue the conversation. But let's actually get into like the history of this adaptation specifically. Yeah, because I'm insanely curious about how they pulled some of this off. I'd mentioned something earlier in the episode that you were like, I'll get to that and how they pulled off certain things. There's some cool effects and that kind of thing. I do want to take a minute, and this is just audience indulge me as a fucking film dork. This is some shit that I think you should know (laughs) about and like is interesting. (laughs) Go off, King. Somebody that I think now, 2023, who does not get talked about enough that I think is an interesting instance of how a career in Hollywood can evolve. And I think talking about his career informs a lot of why this movie works. So I'm not going to have an opportunity to talk about Robert Wise, the director, in literally any other episode that we probably ever talk about. (laughs) So I'm going to fucking talk about him now, because why the hell not? He's very important. 
to like the history of American cinema and Hollywood and just everything. Right. So right. He is the Academy Award winning director of West Side Story and The Sound of Music. He started his career making horror movies, which is something we've brought up a lot. Mm -hmm. Horror is one of those genres that is a very, very rich, fertile ground for storytelling, all kinds of stories. Anybody from any kind of background can tell a horror story. It is an easy genre to get into from a budget standpoint, from a technical standpoint. You can be as creative as you want to be, and you can make that fit any level of budget. And so a lot of directors start in horror for various reasons, right? And Robert Wise is one of these guys that that's where he started his directing career. So initially, he pursued journalism, couldn't afford to continue college, though, due to the Great Depression, and his family was fucking broke, which just shows how different things are now, because he just fucking left, went to Hollywood. His older brother had been there working for RKO for a few years. His older brother got him a job in the shipping department, and then he just worked his way up. Wow. The fuck? <laughs> yeah. And you hear stories like that all the time from back in the oldie day where you could just walk up to the studio back lot and be like, can I have a job, sir? Yes. Go to the fucking mailroom. And then five years later, they're directing. directing. <laughs> yeah. So he worked his way up to editor and he's most well known as an editor for editing Citizen Kane for Orson Welles, for which he was nominated for an Oscar for best editing. The fuck? He also edited Wells of the Magnificent Ambersons as well. There is a lot of interesting shit in Citizen Kane in terms of the montage sequences in that movie, a lot of the in-camera effects, optical shit that's going on there. A lot of that ends up kind of making its way into The Haunting. And it's just all shit that he learned through being an editor, right? Right. Producer Val Luton gave Wise his first directing gig. Val Luton is most well known for producing stuff like Cat People, for instance. He did a lot of old horror shit like that. A lot of good stuff. Wise replaced director Gunther von Fritsch on The Curse of the Cat People because the production just went way over schedule. So Val Luton said, fuck it, and fired him and put Wise in. Luton also hired Wise to direct The Body Snatcher. Starring Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's kind of a Burke and Hare thing where Boris Karloff is robbing graves and bringing the bodies to doctors to cut open and everything. Wise is one of those guys that once he got into directing, he dabbled in literally every fucking genre. So he did noir movies like Born to Kill. He did westerns like Blood on the Moon. Dramas like Three Secrets. He did biopics. I Want to Live is about a woman who was maybe falsely convicted of murder and sentenced to be executed. So it's kind of this biopic about her. That movie stars Susan Hayward. She won Best Actress at the Academy Awards that year for that movie. And that was written by Gidding who wrote The Haunting, right? So, like, that's kind of their first big connection. Wise directed war films. He did science fiction. The Day the Earth Stood Still is one of the greatest science fiction movies ever made. He did sports movies, like Somebody Up There Likes Me. He did comedies, musicals, obviously West Side Story, for which he won 
both Best Picture, because he was a producer on it, and Best Director, which he shared with choreographer Jerome Robbins, and that was the first time that had ever happened, that two joint directors won. West Side Story also won Best Supporting Actor and Actress, Cinematography, Art Direction, Costumes, Editing, Sound, Score. It won a shit ton, yeah. It won (laughs) 10 of its 11 nominations, right? One of the biggest movies of that entire fucking era. It's one of the greatest musicals ever made. And then he fucking follows that up with The Haunting. Talk about a fucking wild sidestep. And then after The Haunting, he makes The Sound of Music, right? (laughs) Which he didn't even really want to make, but he literally just made it to kind of satisfy the studio while he was still developing this war movie called The Sand Pebbles, which is fucking excellent if you've never watched it. It's about Vietnam, but it is not a Vietnam movie. It is very much a reaction to what was going on in Vietnam. But as much as I love Steve McQueen and shit like Bullet and The Getaway and stuff like that, where he is Mr. Fucking Cool, Steve McQueen's so fucking good in Sand Pebbles. But anyway, yeah, he makes Sound of Music immediately after The Haunting. So The Haunting is literally sandwiched between two of the best musicals ever made. And then during the 70s, he went on to make The Andromeda Strain and The Hindenburg. Both of those were also written by Gidding. He makes Audrey Rose, which is another horror movie, and the first Star Trek movie. He makes Star Trek The Motion Picture. Weirdly enough, too, he was one of the first directors considered to direct Child's Play. The fuck? Yeah. Right? Man, that would have been wild if he did Child's Play. Right? What would that even fucking look like? And... During this whole time period, too, he was a governor for the Academy for 19 years, starting in 1966, and eventually became the president of the Academy from 85 to 88. He was the president of the DGA from 71 to 75, and he sat on AFI's board of trustees. I mean, he's won tons of fucking accolades. He literally won Best Director twice and won Best Picture twice. Dude is a massively accomplished figure in American cinema and Hollywood history. And again, he directed the movie that we're talking about in between West Side Story and The Sound of Music, right? Like these two major, major movies. And he does this little horror movie. I say little in between those two things. It's just <laughs> a little, such a fucking Just wild a little story. horror movie. This regard is one of the best ghost movies of all time yeah so (laughs) the way he got there jackson's novel is published in 59 and it was this immediate hit critics and readers loved it it was a finalist for the national book award while he was in pre-production for west side story robert wise read this rave review of the book in time magazine picked it up read it fucking loved it and immediately asked Nelson getting to adapt it. Getting spent six months working on the script while Wise was finishing production on West Side Story. So pretty much as soon as he was done with West Side Story, they got started making The Haunting. Again, getting was kind of convinced the entire fucking story was really just this giant metaphor for Eleanor having a mental breakdown and that there was, in fact, nothing supernatural actually occurring. And it's interesting to hear how in-depth he really thought this whole entire metaphor was, that the banging on the walls was her receiving shock treatment, and that all the other characters were like 
the doctors and orderlies and other patients that she was interacting with. What? Exactly, right? Like, that was what his take (laughs) was. His take was that, that this is what's actually going on. And Wise and Gidding, like I mentioned earlier, met with Jackson at her home in Vermont to discuss the book. And she kind of said, like, again, good try. It's a supernatural story. It was always meant to be taken at face value for what it is, ghosts and shit. Because she genuinely, truly believed in spirits and mediums and vibes and energy and all that kind of shit, right? But getting still kind of kept threads of those notions in the script, like we mentioned earlier, to kind of give the audience this ambiguity around the nature of the house and Eleanor and this whole juxtaposition of paranormal happenings and modern psychology, right? Wise and Gidding from the beginning did not want to use the exact title of the novel, and Jackson just straight up said, just call it the fucking haunting, that was what I was originally going to title the novel anyway. The characters' personalities, like we mentioned, are changed slightly, and the names are changed in some instances, but I mean, overall, it's a pretty straightforward adaptation, like we've mentioned. United Artists gave Wise the runaround. They kind of stalled forever and drug their feet on greenlighting the thing, so he instead went to MGM because he still owed them another project from a previous contract. They were like, yeah, cool. We have to give you a very limited budget for this type of movie. And so he chose, instead of shooting it in California, take it overseas to the UK and shoot at the MGM studios there, because there were specific tax incentives that they could take advantage of. They got a slightly larger budget. When I say slightly larger, like they got $50,000 more to film at the MGM studios in the UK. and the dollars would stretch a little bit further in the UK because at this point in time, it was cheaper to film there than it was to film in the States. And filming there honestly helped because they were able to find this fucking amazing mansion called Eddington Park, which we don't have fucking houses like that here in America. No, we don't. (laughs) The Biltmore comes to mind because Heather and I were just in Asheville recently. There are houses like that here in America, but not quite the same. Right. And obviously the story is meant to be in New England, but the actual exteriors that they shot at Eddington Park, so fucking cool. So yeah, I was about to ask you like what shots actually made it from there. So it was all exterior. All the exterior stuff, all the stuff on the grounds and the exteriors of the house that is all filmed at Eddington Park which is now a hotel. Most of the cast and crew actually stayed there while they were filming those scenes. Production designer Elliot Scott found this mansion. He also designed all the sets. So all the interiors, all that is fucking sets. It's all built at the MGM British Studios in Borehamwood. The sets themselves were all built with ceilings, and that is highly unusual. Pretty much every movie set that you go to There are no ceilings because they hang lights and they hang camera cranes and everything else. So it is highly unusual that a movie set is actually built with a finished ceiling. But it specifically allowed them to do a lot of unusual lighting, low angle camera work, and it kind of reinforces that overall mood of claustrophobia. Yeah, The rooms were specifically designed either with no windows or windows that were like mostly obscured so that the audience is never really sure like what time of day it is. There's a couple scenes where like they're in rooms you just don't know 
what time and place they're in. Yeah. Because you're right, there's no windows in those moments. Yeah. And that's a weird thing that's kind of mentioned in the book, too. That yeah. Oh, there's a lot of interior rooms that are built in the center of this house that have no windows at all. They're completely, you know, locked off inside rooms, and that's kind of unsettling and weird. So anyway, yeah, great location. MGM required the film to be shot using black and white stock just to keep the cost low. Because, I mean, at this point, black and white was still a thing, but color had been around for couple decades at this point it was just way cheaper to shoot in black and white wise was fine with that since he wanted to make the film kind of this homage to val luton's earlier films as sort of like a hey thanks for giving me my first break cinematographer davis bolton couldn't quite get the look that he wanted especially for the exteriors so instead of doing standard black and white film they shipped in infrared stock from belgium so you don't Obviously, light for the same thing. I mean, it's all black and white, but you still don't light the same way for infrared film. Infrared stock can be used with different filter combinations to kind of achieve different in-camera effects as well. But it just gives you considerably more texture, more contrast. It makes the skies a lot darker, but it brings out clouds a lot stronger. There's super cool filter shit that you can do with makeup, and it works really well for black and white where you can do colored makeup. Like, let's say, you know, you're shooting infrared. You can put filters on that will filter out certain colors of makeup. So you can put that color on really strong, put a filter on the camera so you don't really see that coloring on a face. It's completely obscured and it just looks normal. But then as soon as you remove the filter and that spectrum of lights hitting again, all of a sudden it's there and you can see it. So it's like really cool for doing in-camera effects, stuff like that. Yeah. Was any of this particularly revolutionary at that time in 1963? Not revolutionary per se, but it was a different look. It's, it's stuff that had been around, but not necessarily used in this way, and not this combination of stuff all being used for this purpose. Right. Another example is Wise wanted an anamorphic wide-angle lens for certain shots. Panavision had a 40mm available, but they also were developing this weird experimental 30mm lens that wasn't ready for use. And Wise was fucking dead set on wanting that lens. And Panavision was like, that's fine, we'll fucking give you this lens, but you have to sign this notice stating that you're aware that this lens is essentially faulty. Like, it does not work as intended. <laughs> Yeah, You know, use at your own risk. And so that's why there's all these really fucking cool tight shots where things are distorted. I love the scenes in the prologue where Mrs. Kane number two falls down the stairs. That's all shot with that weird lens. There is the scene where you see the housekeeper committing suicide and hanging herself. And that cuts to like this wide-angle shot of her feet dropping into frame, but it's all distorted. It's a super fucking cool look for this movie that's just really psychedelic, wonky, and distorted. And, I mean, people do this kind of shit all the time. They, like, purposely use fucked-up, damaged lenses, weird focal lengths, that kind of thing. Any camera nerds or anybody that's interested in this kind of shit, the most recent to, like, right now episode of Roger Deakins' podcast, he has on Greg Frazier, who is the cinematographer for Star Wars Rogue One, 
the Dune movies, which he won a fucking Oscar for Dune, and the new Batman. And they're specifically talking Batman. Yeah. There was so much weird shit they did on Batman to achieve the look of that movie. Like, they purposely got all these old, very specifically niche, weird lenses from the 80s and 90s. They got a lot of lenses that were, like, cracked or chipped or damaged or abrased in weird ways. They, like, smeared fucking Vaseline on the lenses to get certain looks. Like, they did all kinds of weird shit visually on that movie, and they get really in-depth talking about what all they did. So, yeah, there's lots of that kind of shit on here, too, that people were not doing that or they were purposely getting fucked up lenses to shoot with because you you don't do that normally right yeah no but in a horror movie like this yes it makes total sense right and That's it works the look that you're going for yeah, yeah. it works really and well. overall the movie is super dynamic there's way more movement that the camera has than movies at this time typically exhibited something like psycho for instance psycho looks visually stunning Photography and it's amazing. And obviously, the editing is the big thing that everybody focuses on, but there's not a ton of camera movement in that movie. Part of it was, as we discussed in that episode where we covered Psycho, a lot of it was they were moving very quick with a TV crew. So they were shooting it very much like TV. But this movie, The Haunting, has so much camera movement and panning and weird tracking shots and they did shit like they literally rigged the camera to the spiral staircase's handrail, dropped the camera. They had it tied to like a line, but they literally just dropped the camera down so it spirals down the staircase to capture that super cool shot of Eleanor feeling like she's plummeting off the edge. Like there's all kinds of weird shit like that that they did. The sound team pre-recorded all these tracks of the banging and the voices and the whispering and all that kind of shit. They actually went to an old manor house and recorded all that shit there specifically to play it live on the set for the cast to react to. That's cool as shit. And that's unusual as well, too. I actually really like that. That's, that's great. That's the kind of stuff that's usually always done in post. But they did it on purpose because they wanted to get genuine, genuine. reactions out of them. I mean, that's, that's the kind of problem yeah. with so many Haunted House movies is the actors are having to carry a lot of weight because they're having to react to like, ooh, a ghost has just spooked me. <laughs> oh, it's so cold right here in this one spot. See how I'm shivering. The actors have to do a lot to kind of convey this shit that's then kind of filled in with special effects and sound and all that later. There is a fine line of it becoming problematic. Like you think Hitchcock firing off the gun to fuck with people. Oh, lots of people have done that. Fucking yeah, yeah, yeah. William Friedkin, R.I.P. Rest that man's soul. That motherfucker would shoot guns on set. Cronenberg yeah. would shoot guns on set. Kubrick yeah. like tortured Shelley Duvall into yeah. hell. Friedkin would fucking slap people. Yeah. Problematic shit. Yeah. But I do love genuine reactions out of actors, especially when it comes oh, yeah. to horror. When they do that stuff on purpose to like get a genuine jump scares and all that. And in this case, it genuinely did kind of fuck with them because they would blast these noises at random intervals to scare them, often when they were like not ready for it. And certain things like the banging noises in particular were so loud and bass heavy that the cast and crew physically was just uncomfortable with the constant just. <laughs> happening right like think of every concert you've been to where 
they're just super fucking hitting the bass side of things. Yeah. If you're like right next to any of the speakers or monitors, you just fucking feel it in your body, you know? The other cool thing, too, the spiral staircase scenes are like super fucking harrowing. That's one of the most suspenseful scenes in this entire movie. Love it. Because it Love feels that entire sequence. So goddamn dangerous. And it's a great effect. Because turns out it was very safe, but it looks incredibly. <laughs> oh, I thought you were about to say it was, <laughs> but it turns out it was actually dangerous as fuck. <laughs> no, so one of the studio metal workers came up with this ingenious idea where they literally threaded a super strong, heavy gauge metal cable through the central support column. Right. They anchored it to the floor, and then this cable runs right up the center of the spiral staircase. And so at the top, they can ratchet that cable tight and it creates the tension that literally causes all the pieces of the staircase to like lock into place and stay completely firm. But then they can loosen the tension on that center cable and make the whole thing fucking sway and move around. And again, in reality, it's completely safe because the whole thing is fucking tethered to the ceiling and the floor. It's just fucking wiggly. The cast did not want to go fucking near the thing, and Robert Wise actually had to climb up on it, and then they loosened the cable and made it all loosey-goosey, and he kind of, like, shimmied up and showed him, it's fine, get up here. But that's such a cool fucking way to rig up that set element to work that way. Yeah, that's cool as shit. So, that's kind of all the production stuff. Well, I'm glad you took the time. That's all fascinating. And you're right, despite the fucking pedigree that he has, even I didn't really know who Robert Weiss was. That's what I'm saying. Nowadays, he's just not that talked about because he hasn't really had a career since 1979, you know, with Star Trek, the motion picture. Like, that was kind of the last big thing he did. But then, like, he made some all-time movies. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Right. And not just that, he was important to the industry as a whole because he was an example of, I start at the bottom, I work my way up, I learned all the fucking tricks of the trade as I went along, and I worked with all these other very accomplished directors in the process and producers in the process. He came from editing, which that is incredibly important. There's a lot of directors who do not have a fucking grasp on editing. No. <laughs> and they just shoot and shoot and shoot and just hand it over and dump it on an editor and say, here, you figured this out. Fuck it. I'll talk shit because it's Brett Ratner. Fuck him. But Brett Ratner is one of these directors I've always heard. He sets up a dozen cameras, different fucking lenses, different focal lengths, different angles, shoots everything a thousand fucking times, and then just dumps everything on the editors and says, here's fucking rush hour. You figure it out. I mean, Brett Ratner's. Looking at his filmography is is rough. Sure, and he's a piece of shit, so whatever. I don't care about talking shit about him. But there's a lot of directors who, once their job on the set is done, they fucking step away and just leave it in the hands of the editors to, like, figure out the fucking movie. Good director is going to know, going in, what they want, how they want it, work with their fucking DP work with the production designer, and plan it all out, and go do it. Make that shit happen, and if there's some weird shit that comes up, you figure it out, but for the most part, you know what you want going into the movie, and you make it happen. So like I said, the reason why I took a detour into Robert Wise's career is because this is a great example where all the technical things of this movie, he had a 
good working relationship with the cinematographer, with his editor, with the production designer. All of that shit came together. He knew exactly what he wanted to shoot, how he wanted to shoot it, the look he was going for. He knew exactly what he needed to shoot content-wise, to create all these montages and all these bits and pieces of things that he wanted. He had the background in editing. He had the background in working with effects. All of that builds up to him being the director that he is and also playing in a ton of genres that all have different styles and shooting conventions and everything else. You always hear the people who are good at comedy are also good at horror and vice versa. People who love musicals and can shoot a musical really well usually do really well making action movies. You know, it's just one of those things where like working in all those different genres, you're really honing every fucking skill that's involved with being a good director. And he was such a good fucking example of that in the best journeyman kind of way. And he was always very, very involved with mentoring new up and coming filmmakers and supporting film education like he was hugely important to that side of it as well too so like even when his career kind of slowed down in the 70s and certainly into the 80s and 90s he was still doing all of that stuff off to the side yeah so yeah i mean that's that's why i took that little bit of a detour because there's a reason why this movie works and a lot of it is because he's a fucking good director but he is somebody that is not talked about anymore because he hasn't really made a fucking movie in 40 years you know yeah So anyway, as far as the cast goes, I mentioned earlier Susan Hayward. She won Best Actress for I Want to Live, which was a movie that Gidding and Wise worked on earlier before this movie. She was actually considered for both the Eleanor and Theo roles. Okay. And ultimately, it came down to scheduling, and Wise just found these other two actresses that he was a little bit more compelled by. So Julie Harris plays Eleanor. She was in a bunch of TV prior to this, East of Eden. She goes on to be in Voyage of the Damned and the Bell Jar. She's in fucking Sam Raimi's Crime Wave. (laughs) And she's in The Dark Half, which is a Stephen King adaptation that George Romero directed. And I mean, she fucking won Tonys. I think she won a Grammy for a musical three-time Emmy winner. I mean, as much as I don't necessarily like her Nell in this movie... She has a crazy career that was extremely well-received. Well, she was mostly a stage actress at this point in her career. And stage acting and film acting are totally fucking different things. Everything about stage acting, for the most part, is it's a very, very different style and everything else. Stage acting, you have to be a little more of a bombastic like that, getting the point across. That's part of it. You literally have to project and emote bigger, right? And she is certainly big in this movie, but she was already interested in parapsychology, IRL. That was an interest of hers. So she was kind of intrigued by this idea. (laughs) But she was also suffering from a massive bout of depression during the entire production of this movie. Oh, that, well, (laughs) that might carry over. Yeah, she later claimed that her self-isolation kind of helped her performance, but that she was kind of regretful that she wasn't more social with the cast and the crew like she really kept to herself did not interact with the rest of the cast and it kind of rubbed people the wrong way a little bit but it that isolation helps with the performance to a degree 
it was just not intentional in this case. You know, as much as we talk about and kind of shit on the idea of method acting, you know, this was just kind of one of those unfortunate real life instances of like, oh, it helped the that performance, sucks. but like that sucks for her, you know? Yeah, no, I, I feel her because I yeah. definitely isolated like that before. So Theo Theodora is played by Clear Bloom so fucking good she's the best part of this movie in my opinion oh yeah yeah she's great she was in a lot of tv her career is also bonkers so she was cast to fulfill a requirement of the uk tax breaks which stated that part of the cast had to be british so that was part of it was like oh here's this great actress and she fucking fills that quota that we have to have so like yeah cast her but she's in fucking limelight with charlie chaplin Richard III, Look Back in Anger, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Illustrated Man, Clash of the Titans. She's in fucking daylight with Sylvester Stallone in the 90s, and she was in The King's Speech as yeah. of 2010. She's still alive, too. Yeah. Literally from, like, a Charlie Chaplin movie all the way through to, like, modern period cinema. She's had a wild career. You just unlocked a childhood memory. <laughs> like, Daylight, I remember that movie now. That movie <laughs> might be one of the reasons why I'm so fucking claustrophobic. I remember it being effective. It really legitimately could be. Yeah. It's not a good movie. It's not a good movie, but I remember it being a borderline horror movie to me as a kid. Yeah. There was shit in there that kind of fucked me up a little bit. We rented yeah. that movie. Yeah, we did too. And I just remember like laying in the floor of our living room watching that, just being like, oh God, I hate I this. remember watching it at a sleepover and it kind of fucked me up a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So Luke, the smart ass shithead, is played by our dude Russ Tamblin. Oh, uh, yeah. AKA Dr. <laughs> Jacoby uh, from yeah. Twin Peaks. Twin Love Peaks. Love seeing him pop up. And he's literally the first person you see in The Return as well. <laughs> yeah. He and I share a birthday, by the way. Nice. He was under contract with MGM at this time because he's in West Side Story. He was in lots of other stuff. Also had a crazy career. I, lo I do love that Twin Peaks has such this wide grasp of just people who made Hollywood and were just yeah. all over the place historically. Very specific people. Yeah. That's the thing that's so good about Twin Peaks. Very specific people, very specific careers. Tamblin initially pushed back on the role because he did not want to play a snarky asshole. MGM threatened to suspend him, but he also kind of came around on the role anyway, and now considers it to be one of his most enjoyable roles that he played. He is a shithead in this movie. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. like his character. The character's a shithead in the book, too. Like, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a good translation of the character. He's in a fucking awesome noir called Gun Crazy, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Peyton Place, West Side Story, and he's got, like, a musical background. He's in a fucking kaiju movie called War of the Gargantuas that's awesome. What? He's in <laughs> Satan Sadists. He's in the last movie, which is that fucking insano acid western that Dennis Hopper made. Yeah, he's in Twin Peaks. He's in fucking Drive with old Ryan Gosling in his jacket that every boy wants. He's in Django Unchained, and he's in Flanagan's Haunting of Hill House. I was about to say, so the one thing I, I remember reading when I looked him up was that he's Dr. Montague in an episode uh -huh. of The Haunting of Hill House. And I want to say that it's not just because Oh, he was in The Haunting, but also because Twin Peaks. Oh, totally he's is. a doctor in Twin Peaks. So Again, join the Patreon for actual more discussion of The Haunting of Hill House. But 
There are lots of very interesting bits and pieces pulled from that original story and character names reused and characters personalities reused in different ways but like the entire structure and point of the haunting of hillos flanagan show is like a totally different thing and i can't wait for you to fucking watch it anyway richard johnson plays dr john markway he was in a lot of tv and then he went on to be in a lot of fucking weird specific horror and cult shit he's in beyond the door which is one of the many Exorcist ripoff movies. Ripoffs, but I do want us to do it. Yeah. I really want us to do that movie. He's in this historical epic called Hennessy that they were just talking about on the Video Archives podcast. He's the fucking doctor, doctor. in yep. Zombie that we discussed last <laughs> yeah. summer. He's in The Great Alligator, The Monster Club. He's in a Tales from the Crypt episode. He's he's in a lot of weird horror later in his career. Well, he was in a few like Italian horror because also after Beyond yeah. the Door, which is Italian horror, right? Yeah. The Cursed Medallion is Italian horror, then Zombie 2. Like, yeah. Yeah. Island of the Fishmen is an Italian horror movie. He was also under MGM contract at the time. Wise saw him in a stage production of The Devils. Which that, I'm sure, was probably pretty fucking interesting. Like, that movie rocks to begin with. That's the, like, Devil's Ludon story about yeah. the nuns that are going fucking bananas and the priest that they essentially accuse of bewitching them. The Oliver Reed movie from the 70s is fucking bug nuts. So I can't imagine, like, seeing that as a stage production. What the fuck? And then lastly, Lois Maxwell, she plays his wife, Grace Markway, who appears late in the film, but has a pretty important impact on like the overall story, right? Yeah. She is in A Matter of Life and Death, which is directed by The Archers, Pressburger and Powell, who directed Peeping Tom, or Powell did at least. Nice. She's in Lolita, and then she plays Money Penny in every Bond film from 1962's Dr. No to 1985's A View to Kill. She is Moneypenny in literally the entire Connery, Lazenby, and Roger Moore era. Literally half of fucking James Bond, she's Moneypenny. And that's kind of the main thing she's known for. So ultimately, the movie comes out in September of 1963 in New York and L.A. Well, to back up to her role specifically as the doctor's wife, that's kind of where the movie deviates, I'd say, the most from the source material. And again, we'll yeah. go into more detail about that on our Patreon. But I actually kind of liked her involvement in the movie a little bit more than the way it's, it is in the book, actually. Yeah. It's an interesting last final push motivation for Nell to just fully lean into this is where I belong in the house with Nell's kind of almost frantic jealousy of the house chose her but also the funny yeah. thing about that like when she fucking disappears and like the house gobbles her up or according to yeah. Nell, the house gobbles her up the doctor doesn't really seem too concerned about his wife none missing. of them do weirdly yeah. enough, it's just oh well we'll figure that out later i guess we'll find that after you leave Nell. meanwhile she's like literally running around in the fucking attic peeping out of fucking trap doors that drop 50 feet to the ground yeah yeah she's the closest thing to a jump scare in the movie and then the house somehow teleports her from the attic to the like 
field and she's behind the tree right as Nell crashes her car. Like I do love yeah. all that. I think all that is great in, in the movie. And she has no idea how she got there. Yeah. Now, which is also yeah. like kind of disturbing that whole like missing time. Yeah. Teleportation. All that wild shit. Yeah. Aliens, bro. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah. The movie debuts in September 1963 at theaters in New York and L.A. It opened in the U.K. in January of the following year. It made enough money to break even with the production budget and had mostly positive critical and audience reactions at the time, but it's one of those that has only grown in estimation since then and is now considered to be a stone-cold classic like we mentioned. It is interesting, and this is kind of to what I've mentioned a few times at this point, Pauline Kael recalled in her review seeing this antsy couple kind of arguing whether or not to leave because <laughs> the husband was like, there's nothing fucking happening. There's no ghosts or anything. This is just fucking jerking us off. This is all just going to be a fucking like fake out by the end. And the wife was like, no, I'm really interested. Let's stay. And they were loudly arguing in the movie theater about whether to go. <laughs> the wife was right. Yeah. Getting in Wise's decision to kind of maintain that tone of ambiguity around the supernatural elements again is still kind of where like the main fulcrum of most viewers attention is going to kind of teeter it's exactly to Pauline Kael's point. And we, we joke all the time. You want to believe in all the weird shit going on and kind of dip your toes into weirdness. And I'm the fucking wet blanket. that's like, yeah, none of this shit's real, whatever. Our friend group was talking about aliens the other day with all the weird disclosure shit that's going on. And I was like, are they going to fucking fix healthcare? Are they going to make <laughs> yeah. the fucking housing market correct? <laughs> yeah. I don't give a shit. Aliens can literally show up tomorrow and be like, I'm Klaxor. I'm like, cool. Um, how about you fix the climate? Or I don't give a shit. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Klaxor's going to show up in your house, kiss your wife, and probe you. <laughs> Whatever. Klaxor can fucking fix the fucking rent situation in this country. How about that? But anyway, that's one of those things where, like, I think depending on what you bring in with you, you will get out something maybe a little bit different depending on what your views are and how you're approaching this movie and kind of what you choose to believe. You know, that's one of those things that I th it's interesting, but I think we kind of both agree. You know, if it had maybe gone a little bit further into the supernatural shit, you know, that would have made for a much more compelling modern viewing, I guess. Yeah, I think my final like statement is really just, yes, in this instance, the book being better is true. The book is better, but this movie is really good. Oh, yeah. And frankly, my final like recommendation is you need to read and watch this movie. The book is so fucking accessible at this point. It is yeah. not a long book. No, I finished it in two days. I listened to the fucking audiobook, and the audiobook was five hours. It was not yeah. long. I read it in two days, and that was with taking care of an infant. Yeah. Last thing I will mention, again, just people that own and run studios and media entities just have always been weird and misguided and dumb in various ways. Ted Turner went through that weird jag where he was wanting to colorize all these old black and white movies because he was convinced that <laughs> modern audiences just weren't connecting with them because they were black and white. And that was the reason. why. And so he wanted to colorize this movie. And Robert Wise was like, no, you can't. The original studio contract said it had to be in black and white. So fuck you. And that was that. <laughs> Great <laughs> shit. So, yeah, that's all yeah. I got. I think, you know, like we both said, this movie is excellent example of classic horror 
very atmospheric. This is definitely a fun one to play if you have a good sound system in your house. Turn the shit up really loud. Especially with the knocking. Yeah, yeah. It's visually stunning. The black and white photography in this is so fucking just inky and sumptuous. I love it. Performances are fun. Great. Excellent movie. Cannot fucking wait to talk about the next movie on our next episode. Oh, yeah. It's going to be equally <laughs> its own insano journey with lots of crazy production history and lots of drama and has its own entire can of worms of like crazy shit to discuss in terms of the story and the adaptation. Yeah. So it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about as well. And we're going to have a fun guest. Our journey through Hill House, like I said, is just beginning because if you are one of the listeners who follows both our regular show and you're on our Patreon. You get it all. You're getting a lot more Hill House content coming your way. Hell yeah. But even if you're just on our main show, like we said two or three times already, you're going to get at least another episode of Hill House Mania. But uh, yeah, again, though, if you want to hear us discuss more about the book, you want us to hear us go through the 10 episode Mike Flanagan show adaptation, you know, please consider joining our Patreon again. It's just $5 a month to get all the bonus episodes can find us at patreon.com slash watch if you dare. Links are on our Twitter, Facebook, and Podbean website like usual. And I, I guess I'll go straight to the plugs anyway. So yes, of course. Yeah, go ahead and close this out. You can find our show at all the podcatchers at this point. Uh, unfortunately, Stitcher is going away. Yep. So we won't be on Stitcher anymore, but no one's going to be on Stitcher anymore. But we are still on Apple, Spotify podcasts, Good Pods, Podchaser, google amazon etc um wherever you get your podcast please consider rating and reviewing us and following us specifically on apple spotify podcasts etc those are the yes. ones where we get most of our reviews and numbers from and they really help five stars please please check out our socials at watch if you dare on twitter we're refusing to call it that letter it's now being uh, used because the boy king as you described on last episode aaron Decides he's obsessed with a specific letter because it's extreme cool. <laughs> but yeah, we're Fucking at Watch If You Dare. Most divorced man to ever live. <laughs> yeah. Jesus fucking Christ. But yeah, we're at Watch If You Dare on Facebook and Twitter. Search us on socials there. You can also get our Spotify music playlist uh, that is filled with some spooky tunes, some soundtracks from various movies we've covered. The link to our Spotify playlist is on our Facebook. And you can get to it on our Podbean website, uh, which is our main website. Speaking of music, shout out to your little brother, Jesse Mansfield, for the bumps at the beginning and end of each episode, including on our Patreon. You can find his music at Party Gator, Big Clown, Possums. He's on Bandcamp. Please consider giving him a few bucks and getting some good tunes. I see that his bands are starting to play more and more live shows, and he's actually starting to get more involved with specific artists out there that have been touring around for a while. Yes. Big Clown also just put out some new material as well, too, so definitely check that out. But yeah, throw him a couple bucks, get some good music. He's got lots of cool, fun shit, so it's not anything like our music bumps on our show, necessarily, but he's got a lot of good shit that will probably tickle your fancy, so check it out. And so yeah, that's it. Aaron, do you have any final thoughts to take us out? An evil house... The kind some people call haunted is like an undiscovered country waiting to be explored. Sally House had stood for 90 years and might stand for 90 more. 
Silence lay deadly against the wood and stone of Sally House, and whatever walked there walked alone.